0: Lock Talk Radio.
1: You're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show.
0: I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Huh? <laughs>
2: You built a time
3: machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid Cancer show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the mundus. Because he has a lot
1: of chutzpah. <laughs> Hey, kids. <laughs>
2: People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late.
1: And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. woo Not that there's anything wrong
3: with us. Oh, Oh,
2: yeah.
4: Monday, December 19th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 15-year young adult survivor
3: of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Kenny Kane, survivor of my co-host, Matthew Zachary, and we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show tonight. Lisa Bernhard is getting
4: married today, and is unfortunately not able to join us, but we send our best to her. Uh, it is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year, so... Got cancer? Under 40? suck, huh? It's time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time.
0: Tonight shows our season finale with Wendell Potter. Wendell Potter is an infamous health insurance industry whistleblower and author of Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider speaks out on how corporate PR is killing healthcare and deceiving Americans. He's a senior analyst at the Center for Public Integrity. Kicking off our Survivor Spotlight is Laz Rapstrong, a two-time cancer survivor of acute lymphocystic leukemia, the CEO and founder of Rapstrong Records, a hip-hop artist, and a TV producer of musical therapy.
4: You're listening to the sounds of Grace McDermott, our internal alumni of the Stupid Cancer Organization. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the I'm Too Young for This. Cancer Foundation, online at stupidcancer.com, anytime. We are not your father's cancer society, and we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. So, welcome aboard, another fun and exciting run to the hay
3: on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is all that matters. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live. From the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. As a reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room.
4: During every show, we invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, and ask questions of our guests. It is our season nine broadcast finale. Welcome, everybody. Woop, woop. We got a packed house tonight, although Lisa's not here. Mr. Kenny Kane, everyone. What's going on? Uh, Doctor Reverend James Manning? What's
3: up?
4: And we have returning champion Grace McDermott. Hello. Welcome
3: back. That was a very sultry I hello. <laughs> I'll be your I'll be your yoga instructor tonight. <laughs> and our resident male stud Sean Shapiro. How are you doing? Hello, sir. How are you? I'm swell.
4: Wait, so I'm gonna start with Grace real quickly. You were in Ireland. You first of all you were an amazing intern and then you left us. She was all right. The best intern ever. One of them. <laughs> and then you left. You abandoned us to pursue higher education. I did. How dare you?
0: I know. Where
4: did your trails uh, take you?
0: Um, so I'm I'm pursuing higher education uh, in Ireland, actually. So I'm in graduate school there full-time now. Um, so I'm home for Christmas.
3: Oh, very nice. Yes. And newly 21 years old. And newly. Oh, newly, happy <laughs> birthday <laughs> to Grace.
2: Thank you.
4: Wonderful, wonderful. We encourage being over 21 at the <laughs> I'm Too Young. It's with a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly well i'm going to start the uh the conversation by saying that I had a very very good uh, last week. Many of you know I had a stroke a year ago uh, actually january thirty first two thousand and eleven and I noticed that I had uh, some speech impediments going on for the rest of the uh, rest of the year i of course um, threw myself into a bit of a a psychosomatic tizzy for the last couple of months leading up to my uh, 16-year MRI follow-up with the Stroke Center and the Oncology Unit at NYU. And I, turns out, I am actually, I'm fine. (laughs) Live to die another day.
3: You're not dead yet. Not
4: dead yet.
3: Look at it, America.
4: Very rarely do I give myself applause, but I'm very happy to be here 16 years later. You're
3: like 50 Cent. You just keep getting (laughs) a big (laughs) shot.
4: The gift that keeps on giving. That's exactly what it is. So I'm very, very excited. I do want to mention that um, since last week's show, uh, the movie 50-50, which most of you know uh, what that movie is. It was uh, the young adult cancer comedy from Seth Rogen. It is a big deal. Um, It won. Best original screenplay from the National Board of Review. It was nominated for Best Screenplay by the twenty twelve Independent Spirit Awards and it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Comedy all in one week.
1: This Joseph, is Joseph can-
3: Gordon Levin and Will Riser and Seth Rogen are having a good week.
4: They are having a very, very good week.
3: The best week ever, you have <laughs> <laughs>
4: That show is horrible. Um, in addition to it being Grace's 21st birthday, uh, it is also Kenny's birthday on Thursday. Uh, the big two five. Yes, you're a quarter. <laughs> of what? I don't know. But yeah, you're a quarter, quarter saying exactly. Fantastic. I'm happy for you.
3: Well, thank you. And
4: uh, I understand you got a great birthday present today. I
3: did. I did. What from would, uh, from my Jewish daddy. <laughs> and what would that gift be? Uh, you gifted me with a iPad 2, inscribed with uh, TKL. Yes, which, which is short for the Kane life. The Kane which is a, life. An inside joke here at the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Yes, but
4: you are Kenny Kane, and you are living the Kane
3: life. Apparently so. Exactly
4: so. Um, Kim Jong Il is dead. I guess that's not really news, but doesn't affect us today. Um, I just wanted to mention there
3: that. there won't be a Team America too.
4: So that's like so that's that's Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, and Kim Jong Il. Three of the four it's like in in uh, whatever i'm picturing the
3: scene, Iran. I'm picturing the scene from little Nicky when Hitler gets to hell with the pineapple <laughs> like they're just, they're all lining up for their pineapple exactly exactly
4: that's exactly what's going yeah. on so three out of four um and I'm excited because in case you folks haven't uh seen this on Facebook or our website, we relaunched the Give Cancer the Bird campaign with two new t shirts for the holidays. you done good. i done good. Kenny approved. It is Ginger approved. So uh, if you go to shop.stupidcancer.com, you'll see on our web store that there were two new Give Cancer the Bird t-shirt treatments, which have tote bags and water bottles and all sorts of cool stuff. But everyone really seems to like it. It's pretty cool. There's two versions, one for church, one not for church. Um, or I would, you could wear it inside out, I suppose.
3: It depends <laughs> on your religion.
4: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, because it could be a little controversial to, uh, to uh, you know, have the finger on your T-shirt for a cancer organization. But then again, there are groups like Fuck Cancer, which just throw caution to the wind and don't exactly. care. So Canadians, Canadians, crazy Canadians. Um, So anyway, Sean, what's up?
3: Not much, man. I'm, just, I'm uh, about to start at NYU in, in a couple of weeks.
4: Another grad student? Oh, yeah. What's your major going to be?
3: fundraising, nonprofit, profit all that good stuff. So you're my right new now. best
4: friend. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. And you got your event coming up soon, too, don't you?
3: Yeah, the Hope Gala. We were actually on it, the show uh, about a year ago.
4: Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. So tell us what the Hope Gala is.
3: Uh, the Hope Gala is an alumni effort here in New York City, uh, raising money for um, families fighting pediatric cancer. Awesome. Yeah.
4: Awesome, awesome. Where are you having it this year?
3: It's at Helen Mills. It's in Chelsea here in Manhattan. All right, that check that beats
4: the crap out of where you had it last year. It was like $6,000 $6, a square foot or something. Oh, God, it was a that place. That place is yeah. capital. Yeah. a big place. Yeah. Man, okay, well, you know what? Our um, our first guest in our Survivor's Pilot is on the uh, on the air. We're going to bring him up in a second. Uh, another rapper, another, another musician. One. We love having musicians on the show. This season has been littered with talented musicians, unbelievably talented musicians. So um, let's uh, cue up some intro music for him. Read an intro. A young creative force in hip hop music today. Laz, a perpetual underdog fighting for his life, has overcome cancer twice. Delivering on his promise to never give up with an inspirational album, Laz has delivered with Da Cancer. Laz, I can't, white guys can't say that. Laz is currently working on a new album called The Cancer 2 Remission. Screening his new documentary show, Chasing a Person Legend, he has his own television show called Music Therapy for kids. At Mount Sinai Children's, please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Laz Rapstrong. Mr. Rapstrong, how are you?
5: I'm good. How's everybody doing? We
4: are excited to have you on the show, my friend.
5: What's up, Laz? I'm excited to be here.
4: So I uh, I don't remember quite how I, I met you, but it might have been a random email or something on Facebook, and like I like this kid, and I want this kid on the air because we love artists who a survived cancer because that's a good thing to begin with, but who write and compose music and express themselves uh, as a result of their experiences and they give back to the community. You are the embodiment of that. And um, I'm really excited to have you share uh, your story uh, with our listeners here tonight. So why don't you start by telling us how old you are, where you live, your early symptoms.
5: I'm 26 years old. I grew up in New York slash New Jersey, back and forth, I'm Dominican, hip-hop artist, TV producer, do a little bit of everything. Um, I was diagnosed actually in 2006 with acute lymphocytic leukemia. And, you know, a million thoughts go through your head when, when you're at such a young age. I was 20 when I was diagnosed. So a million thoughts go through your head, it's a lot of different emotions, and People are ain't really educated, so you really don't know what's gonna happen to you or what's going on. So that's why I chose this road as far as musically, 'cause I wanted to bring awareness and, and wanted to inspire through my story.
4: So can you talk about what it was like uh, when you first felt some symptoms? 'Cause uh, you know, ALL is a kind of a big deal. It doesn't really happen in younger people, and I would imagine your doctors probably weren't quite sure. What was wrong with you? Did you have early symptoms? What? Talk us through that experience.
5: I was actually sick for about a month. Still going to work, being the warrior that I am. Still, you know, it was the winter time. It was around January. Um, had a lot of night sweats, had a, a lot of um sinuses, a lot of back pain, and every time I went to an emergency room, they never could figure out what it was. They kept giving me antibiotics, which, which wasn't helping. Was actually making things worse. So. Um, I went to my primary doctor, and he saw me. I was pale, and he sent me to the emergency room. And once they, once they took my blood, they kept me there. They said, like, if I would have waited one more day, I wouldn't be here. So definitely blessed to still be here.
4: So that was when basically the blood test in the ER was when they yep. determined that you had leukemia.
5: After, like, three visits going to the ER and being sent home.
4: Right, they just didn't. It wasn't possible that you could be, you couldn't have that. Like it didn't make any sense.
5: Yeah, 'cause I've been healthy all, all my all my life, all my childhood. Right. And for that to pop up, it was people couldn't understand.
4: Yeah, and you were 20 years old, right? So, so obviously it's a life-altering experience. Um, did you find that uh, your treatments were, they, they were? I mean, obviously this this came back, so. Uh, how long were you in remission before you had a, a recurrence?
5: I was in remission for about six months or so. And my doctor decided I was actually being seen by a when I first got diagnosed. And my doctor decided um, to move me over to Pete because he thought they'll, they'll be able to um, treat my disease better. And I actually got a bone marrow transplant.
4: So getting moved to pediatrics must have been interesting. I was diagnosed with brain cancer in college, and even though I was 21... I was treated in Peds. It was kind of awkward, but I would have preferred it, and I'm glad I did because I'd rather be with little kids than with like really old people. Did you feel the same yeah, way? Yeah,
1: because
5: it's not good to see the old people. The old people you see most of them dying away, and that wouldn't not that wouldn't be too motivating.
3: Right. And where where were you treated at?
5: Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Huh? Okay.
4: Did you um meet any other? Uh people around your age while you're going through your treatments, or we, mostly with your friends and family?
5: no, that definitely met a lot of people i'm actually um I was a public speaker for them, so I spoke to a lot of patients that were in my position after I had my bone marrow transplant, and you know gave them advice things that I didn't expect, and you know just helped a lot of families out speaking to them before they actually went through the process of getting chemotherapy and radiation.
1: Did,
4: so, were you a um, were you a musician or a writer um, before you were diagnosed as well?
5: Yeah, I always wrote, wrote music since a teenager, and but once I got diagnosed with cancer, I, I found my purpose. I knew why I was given this gift, and why I was given you know the gift of gab. So I just had to put my emotion on paper to inspire my peers.
3: Well, you're in good company over there. Uh, Lauren Hill's not too far away from you, right?
5: Yeah, she lives kind of close.
3: You ever, uh, <laughs> you ever bump into her? Uh,
5: no, I never seen, never seen her around. Yeah. She grew up actually in Maplewood, but I never seen her around.
3: Okay. Well, I heard
4: she was miseducated, so I don't know.
3: <laughs>
4: hey, I made a cultural reference. You did. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> it's almost as if you've
3: seen uh, something.
4: I, I lived in 2002. Is that where yeah, that was? Okay, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> So, uh, so talk to us about the kind of music that you write, and and how sort of the 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 ethos of of how you compose these days and your music. What what kinds of stories do, does it tell?
5: Most of my most of my music is just basically a lot of raw emotion, a lot of feelings that I had going through my battle with cancer, um, just a lot of the thoughts that most of my peers had as well. So, I just that was my, that was I think that was like my real therapy. People say you get chemotherapy, but my therapy was putting my pen to paper and expressing myself. And it was like a refuge, a way for me to escape from going through all the pain. So most of my music is just a lot of raw emotions and my feelings towards what I've been through. I want to educate, I want to inspire, bring awareness. And and also I'm like a news reporter, so I was I report the things that I saw growing up, and the people I grew up with. So it's just my life that I put on paper.
3: And initially your parents didn't really approve of this, but uh they must have come around at some point when they realized you're you're pretty talented.
5: Oh yeah. My mom is my biggest fan now. Yeah. But
3: you know,
5: being from a being from a Latin home, you know, it's mostly a lot of Spanish music, so I got a lot of Spanish music influence and you know, rap music and the Spanish com- community back then was like it was like something bad. they didn't understand it but now they come to understand what the music means, and that there's different artists that are conscious, and the different things that that rappers and MCs do. Yeah.
4: So your album, The Cancer, and I, I mentioned that white people really can't say that the right way. Um, <laughs>
5: uh,
4: you have a song called Dear Cancer. Is that the uh, sort of the uh, the crown jewel of this album? Would you say?
5: Yeah, that's that's the title track to the second album. This is for The Cancer Two. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the title track for that album. Um, the the Cancer was more of a personal album, so it was handed mostly to family and friends and people in the hospital and stuff like that. I really didn't push it on a worldwide level, but this one we're putting it on the right platform and we're trying to deliver it to the world.
4: Well, we're going to play that song right now live on the air. Do you want to just tell us anything more about it?
5: Dear Cancer is just a song about raw emotions, feelings that me and my peers had, going through the struggle and surviving the disease, and it's just the way I felt. I just felt like giving cancer the middle finger.
2: <laughs>
4: We're right there with you. Okay, well, this is "Dear <laughs> Cancer from Laz Rapstrong's album, The Cancer to Remission. Here we go.
5: Cancer. I'm still searching for answers, I'm still feeling lost even after the disaster. Thought I knew what would come after, but I guess I was wrong, I just thought it would come faster. You took so much from me, the most important was time, I could care less about the money. And you let my rose die, thought a teardrop would probably bring her back to life. Uh, can't say you had me paralyzed, had me thinking suicide, thought I would soon die. Uh, but it was all lies, cause you knew how much strength I possess inside. Uh, so why you acting all surprised? Seeing my rise can't even look me in the eyes. Uh, can't think so pitiful, pitiful. Reason why I had to get rid of you. Uh, you caused so much suffering. I swear I feel you was created by the government. Uh, but that's another subject, kid. For too many years, shit, you had me running scared. Uh, but now, with no fear, I'm declared warfare. I'm standing up for my peers. The uh, bald heads with no hair. Let me be your cure for this musical health care. Uh, you just a modern day terrorist. And I'ma make make the whole world aware of this. Uh, so, dear catch a fuck you. Cause to tell the truth, bitch, I never loved you. Uh, where I fucking hate you Worst thing I ever did was fucking date you uh, Wish I could turn around this pencil And like the words on this paper Slipped and race you uh, Shit, you took away my kids, Destroyed my body parts Took away my will to live uh, Yeah, you made my mother cry Try to take away my life And me alive uh, And still I ask why Why you choose me I'm not some other guy so you put me through hell Had me in the hospital just like yourself My car's really get well last hope over speedy, recovery in your health uh, uh, Feel I was destined to fail But by the grace of God, the kid was able to prevail uh, uh, I throw up at the side of you You make me sick, bitch, who the fuck invited you? I think it's time to say goodbye to you So right now, I'm cutting off ties with you
4: Well, that was powerful.
1: Thank you, thank you. you.
4: Why don't you tell us how you really feel? (laughs)
5: <laughs> i just i just had to personify cancer as a female and just being in a bad relationship
3: so that's how i addressed it there you go i'm
4: sure no woman takes offense to that
3: <laughs> that was uh that was some great production work that was good stuff um yeah, well, we you. have Shout a few out.
4: minutes left uh, i want you to can you talk to us about you're, a, you're part of a documentary film or you're making one yourself
5: No, I actually did a documentary film, and um, they flew me out to Minnesota. Out of 100 films, we got picked, and we came in. uh, Out of 100 films, they picked eight, and we actually came in second place at a um, film festival out in Minnesota.
4: That's awesome. What's the film about? Obviously, your story, perhaps?
5: Yeah, my story just shows my upbringing. It shows my battle with cancer, me in the studio, me composing, me actually going through dialysis cuz I also had a kidney transplant. So just just everything, every just the whole the whole story.
4: And um uh so did you have healthcare at the time? Oh, yes. So pretty much everything was taken care of.
5: Yeah, everything was taken care of.
4: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I'm reading here that you you are clearly a lazy person because you you not only have two albums and a documentary film but you have a television show, right?
5: Yes, it's called Musical Therapy.
4: And uh, what's um, that about?
5: Um, I bring in a lot of talent from, from everywhere, and actually people that are in the industry, people are not. We had actually Magic Johnson on the show, Roxy from 106 in Park, Ray Vaughn, the guy who sings You're My Angel with Shaggy. Um, we bring in a, a lot of different people. It's, um, Mount Sinai is the first hospital to have a live interactive TV show for the kids where they could call in. Win prizes, talk to the guests, so they come and they perform, play games with the kids. It's something really amazing.
4: That is absolutely fantastic. So, so tell us about you know you go around and you tell your story and you speak at at events. What types of events do you speak at?
5: Mostly, um, I, I speak to patients that are about. Uh, I really don't don't speak like uh, at public events. It's mostly one-on-one with patients and families before they they go through. You know, chemo and radiation.
4: You know, a lot of people say that cancer is the best thing that ever happened to them, and it was the gift. Um, uh, you know, it's a gift that I wouldn't give to someone else. But you're, you know, I, I would agree that cancer was a phenomenal thing because I was able to, you know, uh, rethink my priorities and keep things in perspective for a little while. Um, what's your take on this? Do you. Smell the roses more even after, you know, six years or, like, when FedEx screws something up, do you still get mad?
5: Um, To be quite honest, I wouldn't have it no other way if I could go back in time. Um, I I think it's a blessing in disguise, uh, kind of like a gift and a curse, because I grew stronger. I know that there's nothing that I can't handle. Um, It brought my family a lot closer together. Um, Definitely gave me a purpose as far as my music. I could reach a wider audience, and you know, it's just a, it's just a beautiful thing to go through something like like cancer and, and survive.
4: So, um, question here from the crowd is: uh, Do they, they want to know if the TV show is just a broadcast within Mount Sinai, or if you can watch it online as well?
5: The TV show, unfortunately, is only for the kids at Mount Sinai. Um, we're actually working to bring it to a worldwide audience but there's a lot of politics involved with that.
4: So, um, can we expect the cancer three coming out anytime soon?
5: Yeah. <laughs> no, um after this album, The Cancer Two, that that'll be the last album titled The Cancer. Um, we're moving we're moving on from now. I'm actually I'm I actually have about three hundred songs recorded so I could drop albums for the next couple years. Without having to write anymore, but
3: um, you got to retire I'm like a like, crazy. real hard worker. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and then come <laughs> I'm a, back. I'm a real hard worker and I, yeah. I, I I try to write two songs a day. So I, it's just my, my my hunger and just the message I want to deliver to the world that there's nothing that you can't do.
1: Well,
4: um, you are incredibly inspiring, incredibly talented, and we wish you the best of luck with everything. Before we leave, why don't you let our folks know, how can we find out about you? Do you have a website? What Are you on Facebook or Twitter?
5: As far as right now, my website is under construction, but you can visit it and see some of the songs that I have there. It's www.rapstrong.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter, Last Rap Strong. Or you can go with my government and become my friend on Facebook, and it's mm-hmm. Jeffrey Laz Perdomo. And that's R E Y. L A Z P E R D O M O.
4: Well, I'd be remiss to call you Jeffrey, Mr. Rapstrung, but thank you so much for <laughs> being on the show tonight. Good luck with everything. Have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year.
5: Thank you. Thank Thank you for having me. You, you got it. The same. Have a happy holiday.
4: All right, Laz Rapstrung,
3: everybody. Awesome. Fantastic. High quality. Him and Jesse need to collaborate. That would be That would be epic.
4: All right, let's get to the news here real quick. Hello, and, um, I'm Kent Brockman, we'll and bring out uh, Wendell.
3: Hi, on cancer.
4: Just the facts, Mammy. So epic. All right, folks. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announced to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. they were all free, they're all just for young adults with cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, and mountain climbing trips, even river, river rafting trips. Uh, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet up support groups, and more. All just for young adults with cancer. If you have something coming up that you would like us to spread the word about during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, send us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, your one-stop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop, because we don't want you
3: missing out, because there's something happening in your neck of the woods. Kenny, what's going on? So Thursday night, they'll be drinking to my birthday in Baltimore at 6 p.m., Stupid Cancer Happy Hour, and then uh, Wednesday, December 28th, we have Boston is having a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour as well.
4: Boston, awesome, awesome. And that
3: closes out our year. We must have
4: had at least 100 events this year. I would say so. Amazing, amazing year to end the year. The Stupid Cancer Forums have over 1,400 members. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com today and sign up with one click through Facebook.
3: We've got about 20 slots remaining for Team Stupid Cancer, our official running team for the New York City Half Marathon. Got feet? Actually, with our crew, feet are optional. Guaranteed entry, low fundraising minimums, and help young adults fight stupid cancer. Visit teamstupidcancer.com for info or to register. You'll join me, Melinda Hood, a whole bunch of other awesome people.
4: Aren't you like a team captain with Melinda Something Hood? Something
3: like that. Oh, boy. I'm I'm, it's, I'm not leading by example by any means. I'm making sure that Everybody gets over the finish line. God help us. Fantastic.
4: All right. It has been uh, five weeks since registration opened for the fifth annual uh, OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults in Las Vegas. We are officially 65% booked. That's right, folks. Over 300 people have signed up to go to Vegas next spring to join 500 of their fellow young adult survivors at the Palms Casino Resort, the most highly anticipated health care event of next year, says us. Check out the OMG Players Club, an exciting new fundraising challenge where you can earn up to $600 in travel reimbursement and even a brand new iPad. Visit omg2012.org. And And that that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer News. News. (laughs) Okay, we have on the line with us um, our featured guest tonight. We are extremely privileged to have him on the show. Uh, Wendell Potter is the uh, former VP of Corporate Communications for Cigna, author of Deadly Spin, an insurance company Insider speaks out on how corporate PR is killing health care and deceiving Americans. He's currently a senior analyst at the Center for Public Integrity, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit that produces original responsible investigative journalism on issues of public concern. He's also a senior fellow in healthcare for the Center for Media and Democracy, which is an independent nonpartisan public interest organization. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Super Cancer Show Wendell Potter. Mr Potter
1: Thank you very much, Matthew.
4: It is an absolute honor to have you on the show. We are uh, extremely excited, and I have to give full credit to our our intern, um, James Manning, who brought uh, you and your book and the whole story to my attention. And um, we're also excited that you'll be speaking at the uh, aforementioned OMG Cancer Summit in Vegas next March. So uh, all good stuff.
1: I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, and thanks to James. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate his bringing me to your attention.
4: Now uh, we represent a market, and I say a market, even though we're with cancer survivors and, and caregivers, that you know has a very special relationship with the healthcare industry, um, because we are largely either uninsured or underinsured. We're the ones who benefited the most from the healthcare reform bill, vis-a-vis the being covered under COBRA or preexisting conditions. And, um, you know, I I wanted to introduce you to our listenership for those who are not aware of you. You know, you were the uh, head of PR for Cigna for a while. You were what someone called the number one public defender. And can you just tell us specifically what your job responsibilities were while you
1: worked there? Well, it was my job to protect and enhance the company's reputation. And to do that, I did a variety of things. One was to serve as the company's chief spokesman. I was the person who was on the phone most of the time with the, the news media, primarily the national news media. Uh, I was uh, uh, responding to calls whenever there might be some question from a reporter or um, trying to uh, do what we call damage control. If there was a, uh, an issue brewing that the company was involved in and there was a PR issue I was a person who was brought in to help diffuse that I also uh, represented the uh, company at a lot of big meetings in Washington in which public relations or uh, public relations plans were being developed to uh, impl- to in influence how public policy was being made and one of the big things we did was to try to influence how the healthcare reform legislation was going to be taking shape as uh, we were going through the years 2007 and 2008 and then uh, in 2009. I left my job in 2008, but before I left it, I was uh, very much involved in the industry's effort to try to uh, derail reform or to shape it in a way that would benefit the insurance companies more than average consumers.
4: And I was watching your, your Bill Moyers interview and a bunch of other articles written about you in the book, especially, um one of the issues that came up that I'd love for you to explain to our our, our listeners is the um the emergence of consumer driven plans versus managed care. It's obviously it's very confusing to the layperson, but it suits the the bottom line margins of the health insurance uh industry. Um could you uh just talk about that?
1: Yes, the uh, it's a v- very important topic. The managed care plans that most of us were were moved into in the 1990s and early part of the 2000s just simply didn't work for the insurance companies after a while. In other words, they were not as profitable as they wanted them to be, and that's because they had to change a lot of their practices that consumers uh, were upset about, uh, and uh, that meant that they... uh, uh, were not able to make as much money off of those plans as they used to. So they came up with this new scheme of making money uh, with what's called consumer-directed plans. And the thing that all these plans have in common is they all have very high deductibles. They're trying to move all of us into plans with very high deductibles. We'll be paying high premiums but also high deductibles. And uh, they want us in these plans because the less they have to pay for our care and the more we have to pay for it, uh, the more profits they make. So it's a brilliant strategy on their part to increase their profitability, but it is uh, shifting more and more of the cost of care from them to us.
4: Now, you worked for Cigna for how many years?
1: I was there almost 15 years. Before that, I was with Humana, which is another big insurance company for about 4 years. So all together almost 20 years in the insurance industry.
4: Now, I didn't realize this at first, but our uh, every show we do, um we have a survivor spotlight which highlights a young adult who had gone through cancer and their story. Out of just pure irony and serendipity, this young man uh who was treated at Mount Sinai was saved by a kidney transplant. He had uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Again, I can't you can't plan these things, but I, I can't help but use that as a tie into the Sarkeesian um uh story. Um, where uh, I think she was 17 and she had leukemia. And uh, you want to just uh, tell us that story real
1: quick? Right. Natalie Sarkeesian was 14 when she was first diagnosed with leukemia. And the first treatments uh, were successful, and it went in remission. But it came back after a couple of years, and uh, the treatments were not so successful this time. So she had to have... Uh, First, her doctors uh, uh, performed a bone marrow transplant. Her brother uh, was the donor. And it uh, was successful, but uh, it weakened her liver, and she had to have a liver transplant. Signa, her insurer, refused to pay for it because uh, Signa said that it felt that it was, in her uh, situation, an experimental treatment wouldn't be appropriate for her. And uh, the family was just... uh, uh, they were flabbergasted. They, did, they knew that their policy covered transplants, but they couldn't figure out uh, why Cigna would have anything to do with it anyway. And their doctors told them that they couldn't go forward with the uh, procedure with the transplant because Cigna had not given them clearance to do so. Uh, so the family uh, uh, put together a very big protest, and it attracted a lot of attention to the point that Cigna finally agreed to uh Provide coverage for the transplant, but regrettably, it was uh, it was too late. In the space of time from when the doctors first asked for coverage for the transplant and when the company finally agreed to do it, so much time had passed that she got sicker and sicker, and uh, Natalie's other organs began to uh, to shut down. So she died um, uh, five days before Christmas uh, in 2007, exactly four years ago.
4: Yeah, because I mean, you just wrote the uh, we saw that article um, that you posted the other day. It's a four-year anniversary, and and uh, you were reminded of of what transpired back then. I couldn't help but ask you if um, if that was the reality check that uh, changed the game for you, or the uh, the story I heard you articulate about when you went to go the to the Virginia State Health Fair, and it looked like a third world country with all these people getting treatment intense like an army base. You know, you you had gone back to your bosses. Uh, Did you tell them about your experiences at the health fair in Virginia?
1: I told some of my colleagues about that, my experience there, and I I, I brought back some photographs that I took uh, to to show them. Um, And I I really was, that that was a big turning point for me, and I made a commitment that day when I went to that, uh, it was called a healthcare expedition, and it was a a place where doctors were volunteering their time to provide care to people who uh, who didn't have insurance. Uh, almost all those folks had jobs, but they couldn't either afford or they couldn't get insurance, uh, and uh, they were being treated in barns and animal stalls at this fairgrounds. Uh, and I, uh, I, I I I couldn't believe that I was still in the United States. It was so um, such a shock for me to see that. Um, but it was the 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 case with Nataline, uh, that really was kind of the, the final straw. I knew over the past, over the months prior to that, that I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. I was becoming increasingly aware of what insurance companies do to make money for their shareholders. I, uh, toward the end of my career, had a very high-level job in which I worked very closely with the CEO and the chief financial officer and the investor relations people. Uh, one of my responsibilities was explaining to uh, financial reporters how much money the company made every three months and whether or not we met investors' expectations. So I had to know how these companies make money. Uh, and I had to, uh, And I, as, a, as a consequence, I learned the things that they do to be able to make the profits that their shareholders expect and demand. And uh, uh, I just knew I didn't want to keep doing that. But when Natalie, when that case Came to my attention when I had to be involved in that as a spokesman for a company. To me, that was the final straw because I just didn't have it in me after Natalie passed away to keep doing what I was doing.
4: So I mean, you're talking about the the sort of the philosophy of of capitalism, which is putting profits before anything else. And you know, given what you're describing as sort of this insulated nature of corporate executives, especially in the healthcare industry you know where there are no faces with the statistics i heard you say that you you knew the stats about the un, uninsured in this country and the jobless rates and whatever you know uh, can can you do you have an opinion at this point on you know the benefits of capitalism versus you know uh
1: democratic socialism like they have in europe i think capitalism can uh, can work if 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 it is adequately regulated uh and uh, the problem is that We've gone many years without adequate regulation of a lot of our corporations, and it's uh, getting uh, worse. So the, the corporations are are getting increasingly powerful to the point that they are staging big uh, uh, PR campaigns run through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to try to make us think that they're not regulated enough, uh, which is uh, absolutely outrageous. But they're they're doing that, um, and it certainly was evident in the health insurance industry uh in which you've got we're the only we're the only company on the planet that allows for profit insurance companies to control uh, a country's health care system and we do that in this country uh and uh that's because it has been so inadequately regulated in over the past several years and uh, uh and because what you know we used to have the system of insurance in which almost all the insurance companies were for profit, but we allowed them to convert to for profit status several years ago and that is that was the beginning really of the the ruination of our healthcare system. Is that
4: um so that's sort of how Michael Moore's movie Sicko starts. It starts at the origins of Nixon and Kaiser uh Permanente, correct?
1: It does. Uh, it was uh, during the Nixon years, uh, uh, there was a big effort. In fact, Teddy Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy was leading an effort to try to reform the health care system uh, to create something like a Medicare-for-all system in the U.S. But uh, uh, Nixon uh, came up with the idea of trying to keep the private sector in place uh, by shifting a focus to HMOs, uh, and then that subsequently led to uh uh, an influx of big insurance companies into the business because of, uh, and they began to acquire HMOs that were already in existence, and they became these huge corporations that they are today.
4: I'd love to switch gears a bit and talk about the sort of the, the the derisive tactics of the business of healthcare and insurance companies. I'm going to turn the question over to James, our intern here. Um, uh, James, your question about the
2: medical loss. All right, you were touching on the fact that you had to deal on a daily basis with the investor relations person at Cigna. Could you touch on what a medical loss ratio
0: is?
1: Right, and the term medical loss ratio is very descriptive when you start to think about it, because insurance companies consider it a loss when they pay medical claims. Hence, the the name or the term medical loss ratio, and the ratio is a is a measure of the percentage of money. That the insurance company pays out uh, out of its total premiums that it collects from from policy uh, that they that the company collects from policyholders. Uh, so in other words, if we send uh, an insurance company, say a hundred dollars a month. Of course, we spend far more than that, but just uh, just think that we just say, for example, we're, we're our premium is a hundred dollars a month. Uh, they uh, have been paying less and less of that that money every year over the past several years on our, on paying medical claims. Um, that's because shareholders have been pressuring insurance company executives to spend less of our money on our health care so that more money would be left over to reward them in profits. Uh, and um, uh, that ratio used to be uh, back in uh, around 1993, it was about 95%. In other words, Uh, Insurance companies back then were spending about 95% of our premium dollars on our health care, primarily paying our claims. Uh, Now it's down to about 80%. We have seen an erosion of that much, that significance, uh, over just the past 20 years, if not even. Uh, And uh, uh, that's why one of the most important provisions of the health care reform law was a provision that makes them spend at least eighty percent of what we pay in premiums on our health care
2: do you see that that will actually be helpful or or by and large do you feel that most insurance companies are already paying out at eighty percent
1: most of them will be able to meet that uh, without having any trouble Um, because some of the the, because the way the law was written and the regulations are being written Uh, they actually got some uh, ability to transfer some of the money they were classifying at the administrative cost uh, reclassifying as medical expense so that helped them uh, to meet that standard uh, almost automatically Uh, the big companies have economies of scale to the point that they probably uh, wouldn't have much of a problem the benefit though is that it will uh, prohibit them from going below that and if it were not for the law there's no doubt in my mind that those investors would keep pressuring these companies to go below that. So, yeah, I think most insurance companies can meet that uh, standard without any problem. Uh, but the 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 reason why it's so necessary is that without it, uh, those investors would would pressure these companies to spend less and less and less. And already many companies were spending uh, as little as 50 to 60 percent of what we pay them uh, in premiums on our on our care.
2: Do you have any sense what the Medicare loss ratio is?
1: In Medicare, uh, it's uh, the the percentage that they spend on administrative costs is extraordinarily low compared to private insurance. Uh, in the Medicare program, they only spend only about three uh, percent is devoted to uh, administrative functions.
4: Brian, I heard you say that it's like twenty-five cents of the dollar is to like overhead and bloated CEO salaries and whatnot. Correct? Right in the in the private sector, it's 20 to
1: 25 percent. Absolutely, is so.
4: Um, going back to this idea of disenfranchising the the patient or the the customer, in a sense, for for the sake of profit, you know, when we talk about you know denying obviously needed coverage, it's a largely faceless interaction. But uh, my VP operations, Kenny, here on the show, um, he used to be a pharmacy tech. So he was in front of the people
3: denying them coverage. Kenny, you want to just talk about that? Sure. Hey, Wendell. Uh, So I did. I did eight years of retail pharmacy, and uh, you know I was the one processing the claim and getting the uh, either the denial or the you know needs prior authorization. And uh, it was a very hard situation to be in. And I found that as I I started back in '04. So I found that as I ended, you know '07 and '08, that it was very, very much more frequently. Uh, the case that something would need a a pre-auth, whether it was even like an antibiotic uh, or a cough medicine. And as you mentioned, you know, with the the deductibles and, you know, just astronomical copays, you know, people are forced to pick whether they're going to treat the symptoms or treat the, you know, the virus or the infection, whatever it is, just based on the price. Um, You know, how do you see this as something that's going to either get worse or, or somehow get fixed.
1: You know, uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you told that or described what you used to do uh, because you were on the front lines and you had to actually face patients, face customers. But angry,
3: angry the, customers.
1: I'm sure angry. And they took their, their anger out on you because um, you were there. Uh, they can't do that to the people who they really should be taking their anger out on and those are those executives who were able to hide behind uh um, you know, in, their, in their corporate offices, and and uh, never see uh, the real consequences of the actions that they're taking. Exactly. I uh, I think that uh, we have to be. We'll have to watch healthcare reform as being implemented. One of the things I worry about. I think the the reform law does a lot of good things. It makes a lot of these practices of these companies illegal. Uh, it'll make uh, a lot of those practices a thing of the past if it's implemented as it should be and of course that's an if because we know there's a lot a big effort to try to repeal it or uh, to gut it Um, but um, uh, the thing that we need to be mindful of is that these companies will always be looking for ways to uh, make a profit and they will uh, my my fear is that they'll be looking at uh, even more creative ways of denying care that they haven't even thought of yet Uh, and they will come up with some ways of of making sure that we're not getting the care that we need if we don't watch them like a hawk. Right. Well, I remember uh, when the
4: uh the healthcare reform uh bill passed, um, you know, you could no longer deny someone because of a pre-existing condition. So the loophole workaround was they just dumped your policy. You know, <laughs> that's the
3: best right. that
4: they could do right then and there. You right. know, I I think I mean, we stood side by side with about eight other national cancer organizations in support of the bill. Um, it's not a perfect bill, but it does really give uh, Americans a, a bit of a leg up and a bit of a, a small advantage over what used to be the situation for them. Obviously, we represent young adults. There are 50 million Americans in this country under the age of 40 and over the age of 18. Uh, this extends uh, Cobra to 26, and I'm sure you saw the article uh, two or three weeks ago that the healthcare overhaul is actually based on the new stats, uh, ensures two and a half more million. Two and a half million more young adults are now insured because of right. the bill, and this is this is a, a game-changing statistic for our organization and the cancer world, especially because you know we are the ones that are mostly underinsured or uninsured and, and are told, "Come back, and you're not you don't need this and whatever." Um,
1: you, you, you're so right, and, and my daughter is one of those two and a half million uh, young adults who now has coverage because of the job that she has doesn't offer benefits. And, she was able to go back on uh, uh, the policy that my wife and I have. Uh, the uh, But cancer patients uh, are uh, have been, in particular, as you all well know, ill-served by our, our current system. Uh, many uh, cancer patients have seen their policies canceled uh, because their insurance company went back to look at an application looking for some... Excuse some reason to cancel their policy, uh, to rescind it. And uh, 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 Congress, as you may know, did an investigation of just three companies uh, into this practice of rescinding policies and found that over a course of about five years, those three companies rescinded more than 20,000 policies. And most of the people who had those policies were very, very sick. Many of them were cancer patients, and uh by by cancelling those policies, those companies avoided paying out more than three hundred million dollars right and that money should have been gone to uh should have gone to providing uh treatment for those people but instead uh they went into shareholders' pockets. Would you say
4: that it's worse being uninsured or underinsured
1: boy it's 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 tough it depends uh uh, uh, it's it's almost as bad to be underinsured as is uninsured. In some cases, maybe even worse, because uh, um, if you don't have insurance, uh, uh, sometimes uh, you can uh, at least get some uh, of your care covered in, in, in other ways. But if you have some kind of an insurance policy, even if it's inadequate, uh, you, you, you're you usually not eligible for any kind of uh uh, special considerations, uh, it, it could be just devastating for someone who's underinsured. And people who are underinsured are in these high-deductible plans or they're in plans with such limited benefits that the care that they need is, is not covered or there are annual or lifetime caps. And for someone who has cancer or someone who has some other very uh, expensive-to-treat uh, illness Uh, being underinsured is just as bad as being uh, uninsured.
2: So, uh, Wendell, this is James again. I wanted to go back to the health reform um, bill and when it was in Congress. I sort of became a policy wonk. Um, During the proposal, there were several congressmen and senators that were proposing things to improve prescription access, whether it was to repeal the generics pay-to-delay provision or you know access to community pharmacies so you were not locked into a mail order pharmacy that was controlled by the drug companies a lot of those got dropped because they wanted pharma to still be on board and not um hijack the entire process do you right. see any of these provisions coming back up in the upcoming congress they will at some point i think
1: but it um uh, it it uh, it may be some years before we see anything else coming out of Washington in terms of reform. Uh, and you're right. You, your your comment was correct. Uh, uh, the leadership in Washington, the Democratic leadership in Congress and the White House, uh, came to believe, and I think probably rightly so, that they had to pretty much give the pharmaceutical industry and, and others – uh, some others uh, what they were asking for or needing or uh, saying they wouldn't put up with uh, in reform otherwise uh, these industries would uh, do all they could with all the money they've got to try to kill reform even before it got out of the gate uh, and I think that would have happened I really do uh, uh, these corporations uh, have gotten so huge and so influential uh, that they, they really control Washington uh, we are under the illusion in this country that uh, our, the people that we elect are controlling our government, but that's not the case at all. Uh, the, it's really controlled by big pharmaceutical companies, big insurance companies, big medical device manufacturers. Um, those are the, the people who are really in control. So I, uh, I'm not optimistic that we'll see a lot of, of uh, significant change out of Washington in the near term. Uh, it may we may see that most of the reform from this point in you know for several years uh, will happen at the state level.
0: Hi Wendell, this is Grace. Um, I'm in, I'm an intern alumni here um, <clears throat> at the Cancer, and I just had a question for you, kind of more on the political side. Like you've been talking, you know, every time I hear the idea of the extreme lack of healthcare coverage we have in this country discussed on a political level. The argument, particularly in the case of cancer, that I continually hear is that if we if we have a more public system, a more um, you know government subsidized healthcare system, that specialists, particularly in cancer treatment and things like that, will disappear. Like you know they always talk about how in Canada everybody can have general care, but if they get cancer, they're coming to America you know to be treated. So what what do you think the response is to that kind of you know, um, reaction to a public option to health care.
1: Well, I just think it's not true. Uh, uh, specialists will continue to be available. Um, the vast majority of, of uh, medical students who uh, go to medical school these days uh, uh, wind up being specialists of one kind or another. Um, what we really need more of in this country are are uh, primary care doctors. Uh, That's where the great shortage is. Uh, The uh, specialists are compensated so much greater in the current system that that's why most students go into specialty care. Um, uh, So that's just not true. Uh, What you hear uh, whenever you're trying to reform a health care system, or do any kind of reform for that matter, you're potentially going to have you will be affecting someone's profits or income and that's why you hear stuff like this uh which is not uh founded on any anything that's uh, I- true at all we have there's no doubt we have some of the best treatment facilities and some of the best doctors in the world but we also have the most expensive health care system on the planet and one of the most inequitable and we can't keep putting up with that
2: so one last question On the on the political scene I'm actually trying to finish up Undergraduate degrees So I've not had time to watch the news as much But I'm hearing something about Senators Ron Excuse me, Ron Wyden Who's a Democrat And Paul uh, Ryan um, Who is a Republican Trying to put together a proposal To reform Medicare In this, is there an option Of private or excuse me opening medicare as a public option for those under 65
1: uh i don't know i the 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 ryan proposal i don't think will will ever get anywhere at least not uh, uh this year or next uh it is something that i don't think anyone uh, um, who really concerns about preserving the medicare program would have anything to do with uh, it's not truly a bipartisan bill. Just because Senator Wyden uh, is on the uh, bill doesn't mean that many other Democrats will uh, will sign up for good reason. I mean, it would it would really uh, take us down the slippery slope toward privatizing the Medicare program uh, and uh, uh, and making it just about as dysfunctional as a private system is now. I think we need to go actually in the opposite direction of of uh, uh, Making our private system more like the public system, not the reverse.
4: Well said. Well said. Um, we got to just uh, don't want to keep you on the line too much longer. But I have one more quick question for you, and obviously this this sort of goes back to the the previous uh, conversation. Uh, you know, sort of the profit motive in this country, not just from corporate, but people become doctors to become wealthy, or do people become doctors to authentically want to help? You know, the Hippocratic Oath versus your wallet. You know, people become lawyers to become rich You know, that doesn't happen in other countries Doctors make as much as teachers in the UK You know, is there any truth to that? Or do you feel like, you know, if there were um, Sort of a more open public option system That we would not see this diaspora of specialists and doctors And they would sort of accept the fact that You know, if they want to make money, go over here But part of the public system is this is the way it's going to be
1: yeah, I, I do think we, we will, there's much that has to be changed in the future, and one uh, will have to be incentives for uh, people who go into medical practice to, to go in it more for the fact, uh, more for the desire to save lives and, and keep people from getting sick in the first place uh, than just to make a lot of money. Uh, but medical schools are so darn expensive now. Yeah. Uh, uh, that that that's one of the reasons why uh, we have so much specialization in this country. Uh, so there's a lot that has to be changed, and actually the, the Affordable Care Act does make some, I think, the beginnings of, of some efforts to, for us to have a more rational means of um, uh, healthcare delivery uh, as well as care financing.
4: Well, I can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show uh, with us tonight. I'll end with my favorite quote from one of your interviews, the uh, the RFK quote, The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in moral crisis, remain in neutrality. Uh, Clearly, you have made an epic decision to be the the good guy, and I applaud you for your efforts. Uh, The book is uh, called Deadly Spin, an Insurance Company Insider Speaks Out on How Corporate PR is Killing Healthcare and Deceiving Americans. Your website is WendellPotter.com, and you will be our closing keynote at the OMG Cancer Summit in Vegas on uh, March, I'm oh, sorry, April 1st, April 1st, 2012.
1: Well, thank you very much. I am uh, delighted uh, to have that opportunity, and I applaud you for all you guys do. Thank you for doing it.
4: Thank you, Wendell. Take care. Happy holidays and happy new year. Happy holidays. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Wendell Potter, everybody. Big applause. Epic interview. Awesome. Epic, epic interview. This guy is my new BFF.
2: <laughs>
4: fantastic. Great questions, uh, James. And sorry, Grace, you got shot down.
0: <laughs> I actually I actually agree with him. Okay. Plant, yeah. Oh, you were
4: planting the negative question. Yes, I yes, get yes, it. Yes. Enti- it's all a plot.
0: Yes, for my dad if he's listening. Very okay, deceiving. Fantastic. fantastic. <laughs>
4: he's going to be um, an amazing keynote speaker. Yeah. He's gonna getting, it just makes me so angry that, like, you know, I, like I said before, I I want to hate him, but I love him because he did sort of sit idly by watching these things happen for 15 years, and it had to take this 17-year-old dying, um, you know, to to tip that. But I think what scares me more is the fact that there are like probably thousands of him still out there at these other insurance companies
3: yeah, kind of that are just there. not caring. But or they're they're sitting there and they're trying to decide if they're going to act and take the, the bold step like he did, because obviously you're you're facing a lot of backlash financially and... and well, I don't think... He, in the interview with... um
4: uh, In the online interview, he talked about that they did not really go after him. Like, they didn't, like, uh, slander him or give any libel when he, right. he when he blew
2: the whistle and wrote
3: the book. Um, I just meant more like if you're stepping away from your career.
2: Yeah. Right. But, I don't know, it... it this I think he makes a really good point that we need to take the privatization of health insurance completely out of the out of out of the way everything insurance yes, is done exactly exactly because Wall Street essentially is the one that's controlling how good the care we're getting is well they,
4: i love the argument the republican argument against it you know, and hopefully they you know, if they win next year they want to repeal it but um I, the the argument is that you know you don't want a corporate Bureaucrat determining whether you should get care or not, but right now we're having a corporate bureauc. I'm sorry, a government bureaucrat. But now we have a corporate bureaucrat deciding if you can right. get your Medicare or not. So what's worse? What's the, what? Uh, so what's the least worst? A corporate bureaucrat who's uh, bottom line driven, or a government bureaucrat that's actually about quality, who's socially driven. Right. You know, that's. The, I think that's the biggest conversation. So yeah,
0: you know, I went. I went to undergrad. I did. Are oh, you still here? I am here. I did public relations. Wait, where did I- you come from? I always thought it was funny. They always told us, like, if you're a PR person and you want to make a lot of money, you go into pharmaceuticals. And that was something before I knew anything about healthcare. Absolutely. That basically they were saying you're, you're, in a way, you have to make some compromises to make a lot of money. And that was before I knew what that meant. And it was saying, you make a lot of money if you work for You pharmaceutical. become a
4: disinformation specialist in crisis communications. Yeah. That is exactly what that industry is. Mm-hmm. It's a cottage industry. It's selling disinformation. human cattle. That's what it is. It's just you're selling bullshit yeah. all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this has been a wonderful end of Season 9.
1: Woo-hoo! Uh,
4: and um, we are going to be off the air for a month. We're coming back on Monday uh January 16th which is Martin Luther King Day but we don't care because most people listen to the show on iTunes on their time. So uh with that I'm going to uh hit our closing sequence for the last time in 2011.
0: prepare to activate.
2: Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh internet's.
4: You ever seen a grown man naked?
5: And so to all of you a fond farewell.
2: Hooray, I'm
5: helping. You are a meathead.
1: Oh, my You've done it again.
5: That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
3: Okay, folks, that's tonight's show, our 210th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at uh-huh. stupid cancer. I'd like to thank Kenny Kane,
4: James Manning, in-studio Sean Shapiro, Grace McDermott, sending our love to Lisa Bernhardt on the day for weddings. And our special guests, Laz Rapstrong and Wendell Potter, who will be our closing keynote at OMG 2012. We are on hiatus for the holidays, returning Monday, January 16th, with special guests, Johnny Immerman from Immerman Angels and A.J. Jacobs, editor-in-chief at Esquire Magazine. If you've missed any of our past shows, all 209 of them, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.StupidCancer.com or check out the archives at StupidCancerShow.com. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt and myself and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, happy holidays, and happy new
3: year. Peace out. Watching classmates graduate while you're still stuck in a bed, or in the hospital, patients
2: fucked in the head. Hey, yo, we got to a reason.